Section 18 of Volume 1D of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1D, Section 18, Chapter 40. Part five. These differences were afterwards accommodated by treaty, and mutual reparations were made to the merchants. But nothing could repair the loss which so well-timed a blow inflicted on the Spanish government in the Low Countries. Alva, in want of money, and dreading the immediate mutiny of his troops, to whom great arrears were due, imposed by his arbitrary will the most ruinous taxes on the people. He not only required the hundredth penny and the twentieth of all immovable goods, he also demanded the tenth of all movable goods on every sale, an absurd tyranny, which would not only have destroyed all arts and commerce, but even have restrained the common intercourse of life. The people refused compliance. The duke had recourse to his usual expedient of the gibbet, and thus matters came still nearer the last extremities between the Flemings and the Spaniards. All the enemies of Elizabeth, in order to revenge themselves for her insults, had naturally recourse to one policy, the supporting of the cause and pretensions of the Queen of Scots, and Alva, whose measures were ever violent, soon opened a secret intercourse with that princess. There was one Rodolphi, a Florentine merchant, who had resided about fifteen years in London, and who, while he conducted his commerce in England, had managed all the correspondence of the court of Rome with the Catholic nobility and gentry. He had been thrown into prison at the time when the Duke of Norfolk's intrigues with Mary had been discovered, but either no proof was found against him, or the part which he had acted was not very criminal, and he soon recovered his liberty. This man, zealous for the Catholic faith, had formed a scheme in concert with the Spanish ambassador for subverting the government by a foreign invasion and a domestic insurrection and while he communicated his project by letter to Mary, he found that she was now fully convinced of Elizabeth's artifices, and despaired of ever recovering her authority, or even her liberty by pacific measures. She willingly gave her concurrence. The great number of discontented Catholics were the chief source of their hopes on the side of England, and they also observed that the kingdom was at that time full of indigent gentry, chiefly younger brothers, who having at present, by the late decay of the church, and the yet languishing state of commerce, no prospect of a livelihood suitable to their birth, were ready to throw themselves into any desperate enterprise. But in order to inspire life and courage into all these malcontents, it was requisite that some great nobleman should put himself at their head, and no one appeared to Rodolphi and to the Bishop of Ross, who entered into all these intrigues, 
so proper both on account of his power and his popularity as the duke of norfolk this nobleman when released from confinement in the tower had given his promise that he would drop all intercourse with the queen of scots but finding that he had lost and as he feared beyond recovery the confidence and favour of elizabeth and being still in some degree restrained from his liberty he was tempted by impatience and despair to violate his word and to open anew his correspondence with the captive princess a promise of marriage was renewed between them the duke engaged to enter into all her interests and as his remorses gradually diminished in the course of these transactions he was pushed to give his consent to enterprises still more criminal rodolphe's plan was that the duke of alva should on some other pretence assemble a great quantity of shipping in the low countries should transport a body of six thousand foot and four thousand horse into england should land them at harwich where the duke of norfolk was to join them with all his friends should thence march directly to london and oblige the queen to submit to whatever terms the conspirators should please to impose upon her norfolk expressed his assent to this plan and three letters in consequence of it were written in his name by rodolphe one to alva another to the pope and a third to the king of spain but the duke apprehensive of the danger refused to sign them he only sent to the spanish ambassador a servant and confidant named barker as well as to notify his concurrence in the plan as to vouch for the authenticity of these letters and rodolphe having obtained a letter of credence from the ambassador proceeded on his journey to brussels and to rome the duke of alva and the pope embraced the scheme with alacrity rodolphe informed norfolk of their intentions and everything seemed to concur in forwarding the undertaking norfolk notwithstanding these criminal enterprises had never entirely forgotten his duty to his sovereign his country and his religion and though he had laid the plan both of an invasion and an insurrection he still flattered himself that the innocence of his intentions would justify the violence of his measures and that as he aimed at nothing but the liberty of the queen of scots and the obtaining of elizabeth's consent to his marriage he could not justly reproach himself as a rebel and a traitor it is certain however that considering the queen's vigour and spirit the scheme if successful must finally have ended in dethroning her and her authority was here exposed to the utmost danger the conspiracy hitherto had entirely escaped the vigilance of elizabeth and that of secretary cecil who now bore the title of lord burleigh it was from another attempt of norfolk's that they first obtained a hint which being diligently traced led at last to a full discovery mary had intended to send a sum of money to lord herries and her partisans in scotland and norfolk undertook to have it delivered to bannister a servant of his at that time in the north who was to find some expedient for conveying it to lord herries 
he entrusted the money to a servant who was not in the secret and told him that the bag contained a sum of money in silver which he was to deliver to bannister with a letter but the servant conjecturing from the weight and size of the bag that it was full of gold carried the letter to burley who immediately ordered bannister barker and hickford the duke's secretary to be put under arrest and to undergo a severe examination torture made them confess the whole truth and as hickford though ordered to burn all papers had carefully kept them concealed under the mats of the duke's chamber and under the tiles of the house full evidence now appeared against his master norfolk himself who was entirely ignorant of the discoveries made by his servants was brought before the council and though exhorted to atone for his guilt by a full confession he persisted in denying every crime with which he was charged the queen always declared that if he had given her this proof of his sincere repentance she would have pardoned all his former offences but finding him obstinate she committed him to the tower and ordered him to be brought to his trial the bishop of ross had on some suspicion been committed to custody before the discovery of norfolk's guilt and every expedient was employed to make him reveal his share in the conspiracy he at first insisted on his privilege but he was told that as his mistress was no longer a sovereign he would not be regarded as an ambassador and that even if that character were allowed it did not warrant him in conspiring against the sovereign at whose court he resided as he still refused to answer interrogatories he was informed of the confession made by norfolk's servants after which he no longer scrupled to make a full discovery and his evidence put the guilt of that nobleman beyond all question a jury of twenty-five peers unanimously passed sentence upon him the trial was quite regular even according to the strict rules observed at present in these matters except that the witnesses gave not their evidence in court and were not confronted with the prisoner a laudable practice which was not at the time observed in trials for high treason the queen still hesitated concerning norfolk's execution whether that she was really moved by friendship and compassion towards a peer of that rank and merit or that affecting the praise of clemency she only put on the appearance of these sentiments twice she signed a warrant for his execution and twice revoked the fatal sentence and though her ministers and counsellors pushed her to rigour she still appeared irresolute and undetermined after four months hesitation a parliament was assembled and the commons addressed her in strong terms for the execution of the duke a sanction which when added to the greatness and certainty of his guilt would she thought justify in the eyes of all mankind her severity against that nobleman norfolk died with calmness and constancy and though he cleared himself of any disloyal intentions against the queen's authority he acknowledged the justice of the sentence by which he suffered that we may relate together affairs of a similar nature 
we shall mention that the earl of northumberland being delivered up to the queen by the regent of scotland was also a few months after brought to the scaffold for his rebellion the queen of scots was either the occasion or the cause of all these disturbances but as she was a sovereign princess and might reasonably from the harsh treatment which she had met with think herself entitled to use any expedient for her relief elizabeth durst not as yet form any resolution of proceeding to extremities against her she only sent lord delawar sir ralph sadler sir thomas bromley and dr wilson to expostulate with her and to demand satisfaction for all those parts of her conduct which from the beginning of her life had given displeasure to elizabeth her assuming the arms of england refusing to ratify the treaty of edinburgh intending to marry norfolk without the queen's consent concurring in the northern rebellion practising with rodolphe to engage the king of spain in an invasion of england procuring the pope's bull of excommunication and allowing her friends abroad to give her the title of queen of england mary justified herself from the several articles of the charge either by denying the facts imputed to her or by throwing the blame on others but the queen was little satisfied with her apology and the parliament was so enraged against her that the commons made a direct application for her immediate trial and execution they employed some topics derived from practice and the reason and the laws of nations but the chief stress was laid on passages and examples from the old testament which if considered as a general rule of conduct an intention which it is unreasonable to suppose would lead to consequences destructive of all principles of humanity and morality matters were here carried further than elizabeth intended and that princess satisfied with showing mary the disposition of the nation sent to the house her express commands not to deal any further at present with the affair of the scottish queen nothing could be a stronger proof that the puritanical interest prevailed in the house than the intemperate use of authorities derived from scripture especially from the old testament and the queen was so little a lover of that sect that she was not likely to make any concession merely in deference to their solicitation she showed this session her disapprobation of their schemes in another remarkable instance the commons had passed two bills for regulating ecclesiastical ceremonies but she sent them a like imperious message with her former ones and by the terror of her prerogative she stopped all further proceeding in those matters but though elizabeth would not carry matters to such extremities against mary as were recommended by the parliament she was alarmed at the great interest and the restless spirit of that princess as well as her close connections with spain and she thought it necessary both to increase the rigour and strictness of her confinement and to follow maxims different from those which she had hitherto pursued in her management of scotland 
that kingdom remained still in a state of anarchy the castle of edinburgh commanded by kirkody of grange had declared for mary and the lords of that party encouraged by his countenance had taken possession of the capital and carried on a vigorous war against the regent by a sudden and unexpected inroad they seized that nobleman at stirling but finding that his friends sallying from the castle were likely to rescue him they instantly put him to death the earl of mar was chosen regent in his room and found the same difficulties in the government of that divided country he was therefore glad to accept of the mediation offered by the french and english ambassadors and to conclude on equal terms a truce with the queen's party he was a man of free and generous spirit and scorned to submit to any dependence on england and for this reason elizabeth who had then formed intimate connections with france yielded with less reluctance to the solicitations of that court still maintained the appearance of neutrality between the parties and allowed matters to remain on a balance in scotland but affairs soon after took a new turn mar died of melancholy with which the distracted state of the country affected him morton was chosen regent and as this nobleman had secretly taken all his measures with elizabeth who no longer relied on the friendship of the french court she resolved to exert herself more effectually for the support of the party which she had always favoured she sent sir henry killigrew ambassador to scotland who found mary's partisans so discouraged by the discovery and punishment of norfolk's conspiracy that they were glad to submit to the king's authority and accept of an indemnity for all past offences the duke of chatelrault and the earl of huntley with the most considerable of mary's friends laid down their arms on these conditions the garrison alone of the castle of edinburgh continued refractory kirkcuddy's fortunes were desperate and he flattered himself with the hopes of receiving assistance from the kings of france and spain who encouraged his obstinacy in the view of being able from that quarter to give disturbance to england elizabeth was alarmed with the danger she no more apprehended making an entire breach with the queen of scots who she found would not any longer be amused by her artifices she had an implicit reliance on morton and she saw that by the submission of all the considerable nobility the pacification of scotland would be an easy as well as a most important undertaking she ordered therefore sir william drury governor of berwick to march with some troops and artillery to edinburgh and to besiege the castle the garrison surrendered at discretion kirkcuddy was delivered into the hands of his countrymen by whom he was tried condemned and executed secretary liddington who had taken part with him died soon after a voluntary death as is supposed and scotland submitting entirely to the regent gave not during a long time any further inquietude to elizabeth 
the events which happened in france were not so agreeable to the queen's interests and inclinations the fallacious pacifications which had been so often made with the huguenots gave them reason to suspect the present intentions of the court and after all the other leaders of that party were deceived into a dangerous credulity the sagacious admiral still remained doubtful and uncertain but his suspicions were at last overcome partly by the profound dissimulation of charles partly by his own earnest desire to end the miseries of france and return again to the performance of his duty towards his prince and country he considered besides that as the former violent conduct of the court had ever met with such fatal success it was not unlikely that a prince who had newly come to years of discretion and appeared not to be riveted in any dangerous animosities or prejudices would be induced to govern himself by more moderate maxims and as charles was young was of a passionate hasty temper and addicted to pleasure such deep perfidy seemed either remote from his character or difficult and almost impossible to be so uniformly supported by him moved by these considerations the admiral the queen of navarre and all the huguenots began to repose themselves in full security and gave credit to the treacherous caresses and professions of the french court elizabeth herself notwithstanding her great experience and penetration entertained not the least distrust of charles sincerity and being pleased to find her enemies of the house of guise removed from all authority and to observe an animosity every day growing between the french and spanish monarchs she concluded a defensive league with the former and regarded this alliance as an invincible barrier to her throne walsingham her ambassador sent her over by every courier the most satisfactory accounts of the honour and plain dealing and fidelity of that perfidious prince the better to blind the jealous huguenots and draw their leaders into the snare prepared for them charles offered his sister margaret in marriage to the prince of navarre and the admiral with all the considerable nobility of the party had come to paris in order to assist at the celebration of these nuptials which it was hoped would finally if not compose the differences at least appease the bloody animosity of the two religions the queen of navarre was poisoned by orders from the court the admiral was dangerously wounded by an assassin yet charles redoubling his dissimulation was still able to retain the huguenots in their security till on the evening of st bartholomew a few days after the marriage the signal was given for a general massacre of those religionists and the king himself in person led the way to these assassinations the hatred long entertained by the parisians against the protestants made them second without any preparation the fury of the court and persons of every condition age and sex suspected of any propensity to that religion were involved in an undistinguished ruin the admiral his son-in-law teligny soubise rochefoucault padelion piles 
Lavardin, men who during the late wars had signalized themselves by the most heroic actions, were miserably butchered without resistance. The streets of Paris flowed with blood, and the people, more enraged than satiated with their cruelty, as if repining that death had saved their victims from further insult, exercised on their dead bodies all the rage of the most licentious brutality. About five hundred gentlemen and men of rank perished in this massacre, and nearly ten thousand of inferior condition. Orders were instantly dispatched to all the provinces for a like general execution of the Protestants, and in Rouen, Lyon, and many other cities the people emulated the fury of the capital. Even the murder of the King of Navarre and Prince of Condé had been proposed by the Duke of Guise, but Charles, softened by the amiable manners of the King of Navarre, and hoping that these young princes might easily be converted to the Catholic faith, determined to spare their lives, though he obliged them to purchase their safety by a seeming change of their religion. End of section 18, chapter 40, part 5.